God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you once again for the Lord's day on which we can hear from your word. We ask that you would speak clearly through Dan to feed your flock this morning, and we ask that you would protect us as we hear and listen from the cares of this world, the temptations of Satan, and the hardness of our own hearts. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, you be seated. I do want to mention in the bulletin is a connect card. If it's your first time with us, um, we would really appreciate it if you want to take that card, leave whatever information you want to leave, and you can give it back to the greeter who gave you um, that card. Uh, just give us away. We won't hound you or anything, just a way of following up with you, letting uh, uh, you know we appreciate you being here. <clears throat> I do want to say thank you to everybody. Over the last two weekends, we had a great turnout uh, to be up here at the building and the other campus, moving back and forth, getting everything over, lots of cleaning. Um, we could not have done it without a lot of hands on deck. So we really do appreciate that. Special thanks to the deacons uh, for work organizing that and for uh, John. He's done a lot of work on the audio, video, getting it taken down, setting up here, learning it. So I do appreciate uh, all that extra time spent. <clears throat> Adam was mentioning he's a little jealous that I get to be the first one to preach uh, from the pulpit up here in the, in the new building. But it's just the way the schedule worked out. So uh, I'm grateful for that. We return to our series that we've been doing now for a little while on the attributes of God. <clears throat> Tracing through scripture using Exodus 3 really as a launching pad as we see God declare himself as the I am a title that will continue through scripture, the great I am as he declares himself there. And then really a little different than our typical expositional, doing a bit more of a systematic theological approach as we work through different texts to see the attributes of God come forward. There really is no greater pursuit for us than to know our God. Listen to these words from Spurgeon, he says, the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. 
He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around the narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. That is our heart, that is our goal here at Redeemer, that we don't get distracted by all of the lesser things, but we keep our heart and our mind set on the God whom we serve, that our boast is in Jesus Christ and who he is, that, that to see him in, in fresh ways, that he would be beautiful, that his, his power would be overwhelming, that his grace would be real for us. So we want to keep God central in our worship, central in all we do. We often say when people ask about the church, kind of a, a common little phrase that we'll use is that we try not to take ourselves too seriously, but we take what we do very seriously. That is, we recognize our own frailness and our own humanity and <clears throat> we try to do a good job and all that. But what needs to be taken seriously is the work that God has called the church to and the great and holy God whom we serve. Seriousness and care needs to be taken on how we talk about and how we worship our God. So this morning we look at the immutability of God. Immutability of God. Simply a fancy way of saying that God does not change. Immutability is that perfection of God by which he is devoid of all change, not only in his being, but also in his perfections, purposes, and promises. God is unchangeable in his character, unchangeable in all of his ways. He is fixed in who he is in the fullness of his attributes. He is unalterable. God does not increase or decrease. His moral principles and volitions remain forever the same. Our God does not change. This will be the last of the incommunicable attributes that we talk about. By incommunicable, we mean those attributes that belong to God and God alone. They're in no way shared with us. So as we look at his immutability, <clears throat> Scripture speaks about it in a few different ways. And so we're just going to observe a few different ways in which Scripture will talk about God's immutability. I'll make some applications along the way, but I trust the Spirit takes the truths of an unchanging God and in your heart produces a measure of humility, a measure of comfort, and a great measure of worship with the truth that our God does not change. First way it speaks of God's immutability is that God is unchanging in his being. Unchanging in his being, that is in his essence or his perfections or his character. In Exodus 3, we just heard that read and just Moses asked, when I go to the people and I, I tell them that to, to follow me out of this land, and which that's not going to be an easy path, how are they going to believe me? Who should I tell them sent me? And God answers, you tell them, I am. I am sent 
you, the very essence of being itself, one who always was and is and is to come. There was never a time when God was not. God was never becoming. He is the very essence of being itself. And so scripture would tell us that everything else finds its being and its life in and through God. A few scriptures that speak to this. Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. Psalm 102, 26 and 27. God endures. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. James 1.17 talk about God giving us wisdom, God giving us blessing, all comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. If you look back to the early philosophers, you think like Aristotle and Plato, Socrates, some of these early philosophers, if you go back even a little earlier to the pre-Socratic philosophers, there's a lot of time and thought is given to the idea of being, of essence. What does it mean to be. A lot of it you can kind of get lost in, but um, Parmenides was one early philosopher who spoke about being. And as he came to describe human beings and really came to describe all creatures, he described it this way, is that all creatures are becoming. That is the, gen- the, the description of humans, of animals, of all of God's creation. It is becoming. So he went on to expand. It's either becoming, it's growing into something, or it is becoming closer to death and it's decaying, but it's always becoming, it's always changing. And so he used the illustration that you can never step into the same stream twice. That idea, if I were to put my foot in right now, take it out, do it again 10 seconds later there has been change the water has moved the dirt has stirred up there's been imperceptible change in myself let alone if I were to put my foot in that stream now and two weeks later go back perhaps it's dried up perhaps it's over flooded the bank but the one constant the one mark of all creatures is change I think we know this about ourselves don't we We change perpetually. We see it from the time we're born in our youth and we grow and we grow in wisdom and we grow in strength until we hit a point and then we head down the backside of the hill. You start to grow in frailty and forget everything that you once learned. We say it even in just a day-to-day basis. I know I do. One day you're strong, (laughs) you're full of courage, you're ready to take on the world. The next day you're weak and you're confused and you're timid. One day you find yourself by God's grace pursuing holiness and, and doing well. And then the next day you find yourself gripped by the lust of the flesh and pursuing all kinds of other worldly idols. We experience this just Think of myself in relation to this building, new building in the last week. You know, excited, so excited God's opening this up. So trusting and full of faith about what will be happening in the future. The next day, really overwhelmed and thinking we made a huge mistake here. (laughs) 
Then the next day, full of energy and encourage, everyone's here, we're moving stuff. By the end of the day, I don't care anymore. I just want to be done. Why don't we go back to the old building? And this is how we are in life. We're up and we're down. It, you, <clears throat> you begin January 1 with all your resolutions, right? And then you quickly feel, wow, all those resolutions fleet away. It marks the creature. This is who we are. And yet the exact opposite marks our God. He is not strong one day and weak the next day. He is always in his fullness, perfect strength, all the time, continually unchanging. And the beautiful thing about this is that when we see it, it should produce in us a measure of humility and it should produce in us that when we are uncertain, when we are confused, when, when we're just feeling down, when we're not sure where to turn, there is a God who never, ever changes, who is always there for us, who we can turn to him and he will be faithful today and tomorrow and forever. And when God turns and he sees us as people who are, are so up and down, our faith so weak and then strong and then weak and strong, he doesn't look at us with disgust. Look at Psalm 103. You can turn there if you want. I'll just read a few verses. It says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man... His days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. The unchanging God, when he sees us like the grass of the field, the flower that springs up strong and then gets blown away, he's moved with fatherly compassion, with mercy, with grace and steadfast love for us, not with disgust and contempt. So God is unchanging in his being you see that God is unchanging in his word. God is unchanging in his word. We won't spend a long time here, but God's word can never be changed or altered. He has spoken and it is so. It never needs edited. It never needs updated. There aren't parts of it that need tweaked. He hasn't had any second thoughts on his word. A few texts just you can jot down. Numbers 23, 13 says this, Who is God is not a man that he should lie or ever have to take <clears throat> anything back. Every word that God has spoken is pure, unadulterated truth that will stand forever. Psalm 119, <clears throat> verse 89, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. God has spoken and his word is unchanging. Next, we see that God is unchanging in his moral character. 
this really could fit underneath of essence and, and attributes, but I want to point out, I want to pause here in his morality that, that God is never becoming better or worse. <laughs> he is perfect morality. His perfections are perfect. Malachi 3, we <clears throat> hit that verse right at the beginning. It talks about God is unchanging. If you look at the context of Malachi, though, it gives us a little bit better idea of what God is saying when it says he is unchanging. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament the prophet writes, and like many of the prophets, <clears throat> the prophet is, is giving a, a rebuke. And Malachi does it in this interesting way of being the voice of the prophet and then the voice of God and then the voice of the people. And so he, he will give different questions and then he'll respond to it. And so it's kind of built up. And in chapter 2, verse 17, Malachi moving to a new section says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? Again, giving everyone's voice. So Malachi says, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? By the time you get here, you realize when they ask, where is the God of justice, <clears throat> they're being sarcastic. It's this... I can live however I, I want. God, God is fine with it. Where is this God of justice that you're talking about? You see, they're living however they want, and they've decided what God says is evil is actually good. So they're saying, I can do evil, and God approves of it. God is pleased with it. I, I don't need to pursue justice. God doesn't really care. God is fine. He delights in my updating of morality. I have new ways I want to live. I have new sexual ethics I want to, I want to live by. I have a new way I want to worship. <clears throat> and I just decide God's changed his mind. He's good with it. And the prophet responds in no way. And that's where we get in three, chapter 3, verse 6. God does not change. There is no change in him. It's been happening since Adam and Eve all the way to us today. It's funny, I'd written in my notes, we're in a real time of change. And I thought, that's kind of dumb. It's always been a time of change. And just as it was true in Malachi's day that they're deciding, let's update what God says is evil and God said is good, and we'll now just create a new God after our image who will approve this, a stamp, because if God had known better, he would have looked ahead and... And we can live and act that way in our own lives. That there's a new morality, that, that it's outdated God's morality. And so what used to be evil, we'll just say is good now and God approves. We're told in scripture, our God does not change. He does not become better. He does not become worse. He does not edit in his moral perfections or what he asks of his creatures. He is unchanging Jonathan Edwards, as he looks at this idea of God's morality, a great theologian, he concludes the most offensive characteristic, the most offensive characteristic of God is his immutability. His truth does not change. His morality does not adjust. 
And so he says that from a creaturely point, this becomes the most offensive. Just Would you just change and grow and develop with us and, and give? No. His morality does not adjust. <clears throat> Sorry, my throat's catching today. God, next we see, God is unchanging in his passions. God is unchanging in his passions. This is sometimes called, referred to as the idea of impassibility, which really is saying that God is without passions. This can be a little confusing. We've touched on it before, but I think it is important for us to look at it. It can be confusing to us because we think of a passion, sometimes we put it in a very modern context, and we can think, okay, so God is like an uncaring stoic, just sort of frozen and time like what do we mean God is without passions up until the 19th century passions were only used to describe the creature not the creator and it generally had a negative connotation because it's referring to someone who is vulnerable to change because of outside forces you're subject to the emotional power of others. You're subject to the circumstances of others. Your passions are dictated by what comes into your life or who comes into your life or what they say. And so you're vulnerable or subject to change or insecure in that way. And so your passions change, your emotions change. So when the church fathers and theologians say that God is without passions, that's what they're saying is there is no force that comes upon God where he is now impacted by others and he has this emotional swing and he runs hot and he runs cold. No, he is the fullness. We've talked about it with his simplicity. That is that he is all of his attributes perfectly and fully at all times. So when we think of God and his perfect love, it's not as if he is loving to us, but when he gets upset, he sets that love aside for a little bit and instead comes with his wrath and judgment over here. No, he is fully all of those things so that his love is perfectly wrathful and omnipotent and omniscient and holy and you could pick any attribute. He is the fullness of all of those things always simultaneously together. He's not jerked around. His emotions don't go hot and cold like we sometimes can think. <clears throat> Aren't you glad we have a God like that when you know how your own emotions go up and go down? How you can run hot and you can run cold and how easily we can be influenced and our insecurities rise up with other people around and our emotions go. Thankfully, we can turn to a God who is not moved in that way. But again, I would remind you, it does not mean that God is inactive or frozen or unconcerned. In fact, I would say the opposite is true. He is always active. As one commentator said, God is maximally alive. He is, his attributes in motion to their fullness at all times. If you remember in Revelation 1, we did a series a while back on the seven letters to the churches. And as it introduces those seven letters, it gives us a picture of deity. And the picture that it gives us in Revelation 1, the hairs of his head are white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. 
His feet are burnished like bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice goes out like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. That doesn't sound like a, a passive, stoic, unconcerned God, but a God who is energy itself wholly active at all times. He is a roaring lion. He is the rushing wind. He is the the thundering voice raging forward, exploding with energy. So you think of God's impassibility, you apply it to something like his love, to the attribute of love. And you see the difference that it makes If God is impassable, then he does not merely just possess love, but he is love, and he is love in infinite measure. He does not become loving, but he has been eternally loving. He does not need us to change or to motivate or to bring about his love, but he acts wholly and totally loving at all times. Go ahead and just address it right now. The scratching on the roof is some pigeons up there so if you hear that tick tick ticking around that's what that is we're going to get a falcon or something that we get here to take care of those pigeons we'll see so when we say God's impassable it's not that his love depends on someone else to activate it but he is infinitely eternally immutably fully loving towards us at all times Two more observations. God is unchanging in his plans. God is unchanging in his plans. His purposes and his plans will never be altered. There is not a plan B for God. Psalm 33, 10 and 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. His plans for all generations. Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purposes of God that will stand. Isaiah 14, verse 24. The Lord Almighty has sworn, surely I have planned, so it will be. I have purpose, so it will stand. The plans of God cannot be thwarted. Again, from our perspective, it seems like plans are changing all the time. To talk about God this way doesn't mean that there isn't a real dynamic relationship that we share with God. And from our perspective and our relationship, at times we're closer and at times we're further. And we see God's plan unfolding in our lives and and sometimes it's easy to accept and sometimes it's hard to accept. So to say that God is unchanging in his plan doesn't mean that he, he fails to act in time and space to bring about that plan, but that plan has been eternally in the mind of God. The truest of that is the plan of redemption. Yes, he acted in time and space, that Christ took on flesh, that he went to the cross, that all of this took place, but we see that it was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We see that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. God has not changed in his redemptive plan. We see it in Exodus. He's making those promises that he's going to bring deliverance. He's going to set them free from bondage. And so the story continues and we see the one unified plan going throughout scripture of God setting his people free. He is unchanging 
in his plan. Finally, we see that God is unchanging in his promises. God's unchanging in his promises. We can rely on the promises of God because they will come to pass. They are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, always. And so his promises are unchanging. It matters that our God is immutable. It doesn't matter if you remember that exact term or not. But it does matter that we remember that we serve a God who does not change, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What marks us as creatures is that we're always changing. And yet we turn to a God who is never changing. Again, that doesn't mean he just sits dormant. He is energy. He is, he is activity itself. He is maximally alive. It should change the way that we look at scripture, I think. When you read Genesis and you go back and you see God's creative power and ability in creation, that power is the exact same and alive in your life. When you see the love of God in sending Jesus Christ to lay down his life for us, that love is the exact same and is true for us right now. When you see God calling his people to be holy, that doesn't adjust over time as God gets it right. He is unchanging in all of his ways. We worship an unchanging God. The distinction between creator and And creation just continues to grow and widen. So we love, we worship the immutability of our God. Let's pray. Lord, what an appropriate text for us, appropriate theme for us as we stand here and transition into a new space, a new building for our worship. We look forward to what that will bring. We look back at your faithfulness to us over the last years. Lord, we thank you that we serve an unchanging God. Lord, who is holy, perfect, and active in all of his attributes all of the time towards us. Omniscient, omnipotent. Lord, help us not to be so foolish as to try to create a God who we bring down closer to our level, who feels a little more predictable and tame and we can make sense of and control. Lord, that's not a a God who we would fear, a God who would capture our lives and be awe-inspiring and would call us to allegiance, a God we put our eternal hope in. Lord, as you are revealed in your word, might we understand you and, and believe in you and rejoice in you as you are made known in your word. And Lord, you are the great I am. 
you will be from generation to generation and forever. So Lord, we find comfort in that, we find hope in that, and we rejoice in that.